Well, I'm glad to see all of you back. If you went out of town for Thanksgiving, um, we sure do have a lot to be thankful for. And I think the choir just reminded us of how grateful we should be for God's grace. I know that it's easy to let our gratitude be defined by Saturday, whether good or bad. But we've got nothing more to be thankful for than God's grace. So, um, Last year I picked up a book called Prodigal God, and uh, it's written by pastor and um, writer Tim Keller, and uh, really impressed me, and uh, just taught me so much, and I've been thinking about it, a whole lot of it, uh, this past year, and in fact just taught the college students and even the Sunday school class, I taught on the same topic because there was just so much to learn from it, and so today I owe a debt of gratitude to Tim Keller for this book, because many of the ideas that he talked about in that book are what I'm going to be sharing with you today. Well, the parable that we're going to be looking at is one of Jesus' most famous stories that you find in Scripture. And the interesting thing to me about Jesus is that he really was a storyteller. Uh, More than anything, you know, Paul's famous for his writings and John also for writings and revelations that he wrote down for us. But Jesus is famous for um, his teachings, the oral teachings that he gave. And um, about a third of that, the recorded teachings that we have of Jesus were found in parables. And um, because he liked to tell stories. And that's what a parable is. It's basically a simple story with some kind of moral um, lesson or a spiritual lesson to be learned from it. And... um, The parable that we're going to look at today is the one that's typically entitled the parable of the prodigal son. Now, that's a tongue twister when you try to say it up in front of a lot of people like this. So I'm going to stay away from that that title. And also, I think when we call it the parable of the prodigal son, we downplay the fact that there's a couple other characters in this story. You know, because we just focus on that one prodigal son. And the other part of it is, is that... Um, par- uh, prodigal is kind of a churchy word, you know, we hear it inside of here, but we don't talk about it much outside of these walls. And in fact, I think we don't even really get what prodigal means. Because when I say to you the prodigal son, probably what comes to your mind is the runaway son or the wayward son. But um, that's not what prodigal is. The prodigal, by definition, is somebody who's recklessly spendthrift or is wastefully extravagant. And that's exactly or precisely what the younger son was. He was a prodigal in the way he dealt with his inheritance. He was wasteful with it. He was extravagant with it. Um, But I think more importantly that the younger son in this story was lost. And uh, my proposition to you today is going to be that he was one of two lost sons in this story. And the true prodigal in all of this is the father who was recklessly extravagant in the way he gave grace and mercy and love out to his sons. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Well, my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit will drive home the powerful message of this tale of two sons into your life. Because I think some of Jesus' most important teachings are found right here in this story. In fact, I think there at the end, the, the message that the, or the situation between the father and the older son is some of the more important. So we're going to hustle so we can get to the end of this story. But let me open us in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much that we can be here to worship and to serve you, Father. I pray that you would come now and speak. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that, you've, uh, that you're here with us and that these words are living. So we pray that you'll bring them to life in our lives and our hearts and bring conviction here, God, and help us to respond. We thank you for all you're doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to spend our time in Luke chapter 15. Um, that's where we're going to be. So Luke's the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. It reads, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. 
both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And I want to remind you that we're, uh, we're going to stop right there for just a second before we get to the parable. Because I want to remind you, we are looking at a day in the life of Jesus. This is actual history here. We're looking at the life of Jesus. One day he's walking by. This is Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh, walking the earth. He's in, uh, you know, somewhere in the Middle East over there. And he's uh, first century. And he's walking around probably near the countryside. And all of a sudden he stops to teach. And um, the end of Luke 14 says that Jesus says, let those with ears uh, those with ears to hear, hear. And uh, so we think that the crowd that gathers are those with ears to hear. And it was kind of a typical crowd for Jesus. There were um, two audiences, is how Luke describes it. And the first um, uh, part of the audience was the uh, tax collectors and the sinners. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners, we all knew who they were. They were the scum of the earth. If you ask the Pharisees and the, uh, the scribes there, that's who they thought of them as the, as the scum of the earth. They were the people that were considered to be furthest away from God. They had rejected God. They had rejected the teachings of their family, the traditions of their culture, and they just walked away from it. And this, the Gospels make it sound like these are the people that love to draw close to Jesus. The people furthest from God who like to draw close to the man of God. You know, it's kind of an ironic thing how that works out. But they love to be near him and love to hear these stories. So they regularly gathered. And that's audience one. Now, audience two is the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law. And um, they were also there and they were present. And in fact, whenever they were present, if they were at an official gathering and the uh, the uh, sinners and tax collectors were to come, it would not be all this joy because they had come to worship with him. In fact, it would be a tragedy that they walked in and they would be looked down upon and they would not be allowed to be a part of there. So here they are, the extreme audiences, the um, Pharisees who were considered to be the people closest to God or most like God on earth were there and the people that were considered to be furthest away from God um, were there to hear Jesus teach. And the Pharisees essentially were the people who tithed regularly, they went to worship regularly, they sacrificed regularly, they read the law regularly and did what the law said. So if we didn't know any better, we would think these are the good guys. And um, because that's what it kind of looked like. So they're both there. And uh, one group starts grumbling, and it's the Pharisees and the, tax, and the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're grumbling because they're like, what are these people doing around this messenger of God? You know, if they're far from God, why would they want to be near him? And he's eating with them. He's accepting them. There must be something wrong with his message. He must not be telling them the truth. He must be just tickling their ears, you know, giving them what they want to hear. That's probably what was running through their mind. And the reason I say that is probably that was what would run through our mind. You know, if people far from God wanted to be near someone who's called a man of God. And in fact, he was God in the flesh. So in uh, the response to all of this grumbling, then um, Jesus starts to tell this parable. And in fact, he tells three parables right after this in response to the grumbling. And um, we're going to focus on the third. So beginning in verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But... When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up 
and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So the beginning of this story is about a younger, uh, the younger of the two sons who um, shames his father by asking him for his inheritance before the father dies. And so basically what he's saying to is, um, you know, I'm tired of pretending here. <laughs> I'm tired of being patient. Uh, I don't really like you. I like your stuff, you know. So I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead, can I just go ahead and get my inheritance and get out of here? That's essentially what he's saying to the father. And... Um, and so the father said, absolutely not, and backhand him across the face. It's not what happened. But that's what any self-respecting patriarch in the society probably would have done. Um, but he, father, who is uh, a prodigal in the way that he gives out grace and love and mercy to his two sons, um, he didn't do that. He maintained his love for his son and responded by giving him the inheritance he asked for. Now, what would happen is that um, when the inheritance was distributed, the elder son would get a double portion. And so he would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get the third of the estate, the less portion. And so the father is very prodigal in this way, so he says, okay, and he liquidates property probably, gives him his wealth, and says, all right, love you. And he heads out, and uh, the son takes all that he has given, and he heads off into what's called the distant country, or the far country is what Scripture calls it. I kind of like to think of it as Las Vegas, and the reason I think of it as Las Vegas is because what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas, and everything this guy had stayed in Vegas. He took it all with him, and he left it all there. Um, it comes across as if he says, you know, uh, you know that a round of drinks for everyone. That's how he was so wasteful with everything that he had. And he wasted everything he had, and then there's this tragedy, there's a famine in the area, and he has nothing now, and so he's starving. And so it's as if he walks up to the guy who lives in the country and says, would you just give me something to do, some kind of work? And he says, well, I mean, I guess you can go feed my pigs because that really wasn't a job, probably. But it was more like, I mean, I guess you can go do that. So he heads out to feed the pigs. He sees the corn cobs in the slop. And you can imagine it's like the cartoon where all of a sudden it turns into a turkey. And he's like, yes, you know, or it's like you on Thanksgiving, memos, pumpkin pie, you know, whatever it is that runs through your mind. But um, so he sees this and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> comes to his senses, which I hope every single one of you would whenever the, the uh, corn cob looked tasty in the slop, comes to his senses and he says, hold on a second here. You know, if I went home and I worked for my dad, I would eat better than if I stayed here and tried to feed these pigs. So maybe I'll go home and so, uh, you know, ask dad if he'll hire me because I know I'm not worthy to be his son. And verse 20 says, so he got up and he came to his father. Now, this is the final scene of Act 1 of this act two-act two play here. And um, it's kind of the dramatic climax before the intermission, you know. And uh, we're not going to take an intermission, but if it was a play, we would. And uh, here he is, and he's um, sitting there. He says, I'm going to go home. He starts rehearsing the speech. You know, how should I say it? Father, I've sinned. Or, oh, Father. You know, he goes through the whole thing, standing in front of a mirror or... The mud, whatever he's got in front of him. And he rehearses this speech. How am I going to say this? You know, goes through the words. And finally, when he gets it all together, he starts heading home. And you can imagine in this musical, it cues the music as the sun is cresting over the top of this hill, head held low. And perfectly in the distance, his father's on the front porch, sees him in the, the distance, coming up over the hill. And it's, bum, 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 you know, we can play something down here. Something, the dramatic music as he heads home. And it says, but... Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So here's this father who sees his son shaming himself by walking home, head held low, you know, just totally humiliated. For what he's done and known he's done. And now he's going to come home and beg his dad back for, you know, whatever he wants. And so he's just hanging his head, walking. And you can imagine everybody in the community is probably looking out the window and says, Oh, there's the younger son, the prodigal, the one who ran off. Look, he's so shameful. He went off and did all these awful things. Now he thinks he's going to come home and be welcomed back in the family. And they're probably all talking bad about him, at least thinking bad about him. And this father sees him. And that's not what runs through his mind. This father actually shames himself because he decides he's going to run to his son. Now, the reason it would be shameful is because with those long robes, in order to run to his son, he'd have to pull up his robes, expose those bare legs, and just that's the only way you could run. And so that's what he did and ran off down there to catch his son at the top of that hill, fell on top of him and started kissing my son, my son, you've come home. You know, and let me just go ahead and connect the dots here for you, okay? Here's this son, and he's walking home, and he's so shameful. You know, it's the walk of shame back home. And his dad's thinking, I mean, at least I like to imagine it this way. Oh, no, you are not going to look at my son with shame. If you're going to look at anybody in shame, look on me in shame. And so he exposes his legs, and he takes off running. I'm the shameful one, not him. He's my son, and I love him. And he just runs and just falls on him and just starts, you know, kissing him and loving him. And then the the son is like, no, 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 dad, 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 quickly. I've rehearsed this father. And he goes into his speech of however he's going to do it. And the father will hear none of it. He says, no, wait, servants, come here, quick, go get the best robe, which would be his robe. Go get my robe, throw it on him, find some sandals, put it on him, get the family ring, put it on his finger and find the best meat on this plantation. And let's let's have a party. And that's what they do. They probably have music and dancing and because uh, that's what they do at that kind of thing. Well, anyways, um, here's the point of this first act. And it should always accompany this story. God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of wrongdoing you could ever come up with. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what sort of thoughts are running through your mind right now. I don't know what happened to you last night. I don't know the guilt that's in your mind for last week. I don't know why you're, you're still dwelling on last year and all of those terrible things you've done. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. You could never come up with something so evil and so sinful that God wouldn't have enough grace to cover it. You couldn't come up with it. You could not develop it, make it up, think it up. His grace would always overwhelm. That's why we sing Amazing Grace. Amazing grace. It's amazing. It's always amazing. Because, see, here's the younger son. He knew that in his father's house there would be food to spare. And you know what else would be there? Grace to spare. And it's from where you are right now. I don't know what maybe is keeping you in the distant country or the far country. But there is grace to spare at God's feet. You don't have to worry about the judgment or the condemnation. Just grace. 
there is no, there is no sin that's a match for God's grace. And that's the portrait of our prodigal God. And the truth is, some of you might just need to tune out right now and just focus on that. Because maybe that's exactly where you are right now. And I, I'll, I'll give you permission to do that. Just to say, God, here I am in the far country and I want to come home. And I'm so sorry. But God is so lavish with his love and grace. He's so prodigal in the way that he distributes it to us, his children. And so that's, that's what I want you to know. But there's more to this story. That's the story. That's the act one. And so we're going to move on to the second act of this. And so first we have this younger son who shames the father by asking his father for, you know, this inheritance before he dies. And then there's the father who shames himself by exposing the legs and running off, you know, to to love his son. And now, of course, everybody gets a turn. And so the older brother takes his turn at shaming the father as well. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat. So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. And was lost and has been found. And so the older son's shame... On the father came because he refused to go in what was probably the biggest party this father had ever thrown. The whole community was gathered and this son said, there is no way I'm going in there. And so he stands outside the gate publicly, you know, casting his vote of disapproval on the father for what he's doing and on the son for what he did. And he stands out, there ain't no way I'm going in there. And so the father has to lower himself and walk outside there, go to find his son and plead with the son, please just come in. And uh, that's not what most fathers inside of this community probably would do. But we're talking about a prodigal loving father here. And we learn that just as the younger son loved the father's stuff and not the father, that's the same charge that's against the older son. He didn't work in his fields or stay at home because he was like, I just love my dad. I just love my father. I want to stay here and serve him because he's worth it and I want his pleasure. And I, that, I just want to be near him. He didn't stay there because of that. Do you know why I stayed at home working in the fields and in the, the, the vineyards or whatever would be there? So he could be close to the stuff. Because he didn't love the father. He actually loved the father's stuff, I think, is the message that we're reading here. And he wanted full control over the father's stuff. All of the possessions. So he stayed close to home. And we could mistake it as staying home. But really he's just actually staying near the stuff. And it's really easy for us to detect that the younger son is lost. You know, because the younger son is in the distant country. He's out wasting money on prostitutes. You know, he's spent everything he has. And we all look at that and say, that right there is a lost guy. You know, we could point it out. You know, it's like the picture we could throw up on the screen. We'd say, lost. We all know. But this older son, it's much uh, much more difficult to detect. We kind of look at him and we say, well, I mean, he looks to be, you know, found. He's at home. You know, he's saved. He's at home. Because, look, he's there in the father's, you know, 
in the father, on the Father's place of living. He's there with the Father. And so that, that's easy for us to see for the younger son. But for the older son, it's much more complicated. And you know what? This is a revolutionary thought to think that this son could actually be lost at home. Remember um, who Jesus' target audience was? It was the people grumbling, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so you imagine Jesus trying to get this message across to them. And they were essentially the same as the elder brothers here. And Jesus is saying he may be at home and he may even be at work in the vineyard or the fields, but this so-called good son is actually lost. And he may even be more lost than the son who ran away. And if the father himself, uh, father represents God himself, and if the meal represents the feast of salvation, then eventually the younger son came in and was saved, but the older son remained outside and was lost. And the Pharisees who were hearing this message would have totally gotten it. Jesus would not have had to connect the dots. And that it would have been, uh, you know, an audacious thing for, for Jesus to even say that. So you can almost hear the gasp at the end of this story. What? You know, he stayed outside? The older son was the one who was lost and the younger son was the one who was found, who was saved? That doesn't make any sense. Well, what is it that's keeping this elder brother out? Well, verse 29, it says, For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. The good son is not lost even though he's good. You know, it's not like, well, he's, even though he's a good kid, he still was lost in the whole thing. Actually, he is lost precisely because he's so good. He's so good. He's been slaving all these years and serving all these years. He's so good. That's what actually makes him lost. It's his good behavior. It's not his sin that keeps him out. It's actually his righteousness. Because, see, I believe, let me explain this a little bit further. I believe there are two ways that you can be your own savior. You can be your own savior, number one, by being like the younger son and saying, there are no rules. It doesn't matter what I do. And just run off and do your thing and say, if there needs to be any saving in the end, I'll save myself. You know, that's number one. Number two is the way that you can save yourself is to be so good that you don't need a savior to just to always obey, to always do the right thing. If I can be so good that God has to answer my prayers. If I can be so good that he has to give me a good life, and if I can be so good that he has to take me to heaven, then in that situation, then you look to Jesus maybe as a helper or maybe as a rewarder, but you definitely don't need him to be a savior because you've got that taken care of on your own. See, here's the difference. The religious person is the one who obeys God just to get control over God and the things that God has. But the true Christian obeys God. Just to get God. Just to be near him and to experience his pleasure. The religious person obeys to get control over God's stuff. But the true Christian obeys because of God. They want God. So we all should be wondering at this point, so am I after God or am I after God's stuff? I think it's a question we all should wrestle with. Um, when I was in uh, college, at the end of my college career, I was headed into my, was in my senior year, headed into the spring right before I was graduating, like every other college graduate, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do, do after I graduated. And um, I remember my mother um, saying to me, um, now, Wes, what are you going to do after you graduate? You know, she would kind of go through that whole thing. And, um, and I would say, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, we didn't send you to college just to get a good degree. You need to get a job, too. And so I kind of went through that whole thing. Um, and uh, what, what am I going to do? And I remember just being so, what in the world am I going to do with my life? 
And at the end of the stories, I ended up here. But the, uh, I remember going through this whole thing of what am I going to do? And I started um, uh, reading through Matthew. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek God, first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And I remember reading that verse and saying, that's exactly what I want. I just want to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then he'll add all these stuff to me. And it was kind of an honorable thing at first. But then all of a sudden I realized that I was not seeking God at all or his kingdom or his righteousness. I was seeking the stuff. I just wanted the stuff. I wanted all these things. And I had a breaking moment where I said, God, I'm so sorry. If I never get all these things, I'll be satisfied if I just get your kingdom and your righteousness. And I think we all need to have that in our life. Well, Jesus ends this parable with the lostness of the older brother. And I think it's in order to get across the point that that is the more dangerous spiritual condition. The younger brother knew he was lost, but the older brother had no clue. He thought he was safe in the arms of his father. Well, the father, once again, is so prodigal in how he deals with his son. He says, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It's as if the father is saying, I didn't condemn your brother. I'm not going to condemn you. But your brother was lost. Now he's home. We had to celebrate. Please come in and celebrate with us. The choice is up to you, but please, would you please come in? And it's almost as if you hear the dun-dun-dun. Will the family be reunited? Dun-dun-dun. You know, will the brothers hug and, you know, forgive one another? Whatever. But with that, the story is completely over. He just It's like the credits rolling on a movie before the movie should be over. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I paid to see this, and that's the end, you know. Well, that's it. Well, why do you think Jesus would end that way? Well, I'm going to tell you why I think he would. I think it's because the choice was actually up to the Pharisees and the scribes. Would they come into the feast and celebrate the return of their younger brothers, the sinners and the tax collectors? Jesus is pleading with the enemies of his message to see how lost they really are. And I think that's the same message for us today. If any of us are here thinking that we are going to earn our way into heaven by all of our good works and we're becoming judgmental and like the elder brother in this story towards all of those who we don't think are going to, then we've missed it. Because our so-called righteous deeds are going, to, are going to fail us miserably on that day if we think it's going to earn us any way into heaven. Romans 3 says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You can't forget that. So if we've... Um, um, some people have had a difficult time with this, uh, with this parable when it comes to using it to explain the gospel. Because it seems to downplay the need for atonement, you know. Atonement's one of those other churchy words that we use to say, uh, to basically explain that there has to be a payment for the sin. A payment for, you know, a penalty for what the wrongdoing has happened. So Christ on the cross is the atonement for the sins of the world. And if you use this parable to share the gospel, it almost comes across as you don't really have to do anything. It's all completely free. Just come home and the Father will embrace you. So some people back away from it. But I think it's a little bit different. I think that it actually tells us that it does cost somebody something in this parable. Um, because it was, it, it was free to the younger brother, but it was not free to everybody. It cost someone. Verse 31 says that the father said to the older son, all that is mine is yours. That is literally true. Because the son, younger son already had his inheritance. So there's two-thirds left. It's all going to the elder brother at some point. So that means every time he says, go get the robe, that's ultimately going to cost the older brother. Go kill the calf, that's ultimately going to cost the older brother. So you can imagine how indignant he's getting about all of this. No, that's my stuff, you know. That's kind of how he looked at it. So it's not free for the son to be brought back into the family. It's costing someone, and that someone is the older brother. 
And that's the final point I want to make is this parable. Remember how he said that Jesus actually taught three parables? Well, the first parable he taught was the parable of the lost sheep, which is about one sheep that got lost from the 99. And after he was lost, what happened? The shepherd went in search of the lost sheep, right? Went and found him, brought him home. And then the second one is the parable of the lost coin. The one coin gets separated from the nine and it's lost. And the woman uh, cleans everything out of the house and sweeps until she finds it. She goes in search of it. And then the third parable is this lost son. And the son is lost and who goes searching for him? Nobody. And I think Jesus is trying to make that go off in our head. Nobody went to search for him. Well, who should have? Well, I think they would have known, the people that were listening to his story. The older brother should have gone in search of him. Because that's exactly why he got the double portion of the inheritance. He was, he, he was the one to keep the family intact. But that's not the one who goes. Life magazine reporter tells the perilous search for Army Lieutenant Daniel Dawson during the Vietnam War when his reconnaissance plane went down over the Viet Cong jungle. When his brother Donald heard the report, he sold everything he had, left his wife with $20, and bought passage to Vietnam. There he equipped himself with the soldier's gear and wandered through the guerrilla-controlled jungle looking for his brother. He carried leaflets picturing the plane and describing in Vietnamese the reward for news of the missing pilot. He became known as An Toi Phi Kong, the brother of the pilot. Isn't that the best elder brother you've ever heard of? It's the kind of brother that we all want. And you know what? It's the kind of brother we all spiritually need. And the best news is it's the kind we have. We need one who would not just go into a far country in search of us, but would come all the way from heaven to earth to find us. We need one who would not just open up his wallet for us, but would lay down his entire life for us and pour it out. We need one who would pay not just some finite cost, but an infinite debt to bring us back into God's family. You know what? We do. And it's Jesus. And that's why we get to celebrate at Advent his coming on rescue mission. For, his, for, the, for us that are lost. So how do we get the Father's robe? Well, we get it because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. And how do we get the Father's feast? Well, it's because Jesus took the cup of wrath so that we might have the cup of joy. Our salvation cost him greatly. It isn't free like we say it is. It cost someone and it cost our true elder brother in Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to this message? Well... If we're in the far country and we recognize ourselves as the character in the far country, it doesn't matter what you've done, come home. Or if we recognize ourselves as the character who stayed at home thinking that we're going to earn our way into good standing with God, give up and realize that it's okay to say, I need a Savior, because that's the only way we can be found in right standing with God. And maybe you're neither of those. Maybe you're like the, uh, you, you are safe at home and you understand the gospel. Well then, take your cue from Jesus. Be a true elder brother. And go and share his message to those that lost brothers that have run away. And bring them back into the fold of the family. There are people all around you and close to you that need desperately a true elder brother. And you can be that ambassador for them in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story that's used to paint such a beautiful picture for us. God, I pray for each person here that they'd respond. Maybe it's uh, in coming into relationship with you. Maybe it's in um, confessing that they've um, confessing that we have wanted your stuff more than you. But I pray that you would deal with each of us individually. We thank you that you can. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
We're going to have an invitation. And uh, let me just go ahead and tell you, if you need to come home today, then there will be ministers down here, staff people, and other church members that would love to walk you through that decision. Um, If you're safe at home, you think, but really you're depending on your own works, there'll be somebody here to help you work through that decision. Or maybe you and your family just need to plant your feet here in this church as members. Then I invite you to come. And finally, the altar's open. If you need to come and just kneel and say, God, I'm so sorry I've been going for your stuff and not for you. I just want you. Then I'd invite you to come pray. So I'm going to invite you to stand. The choir's going to sing. And you respond.